Welcome to Daily Airs. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. There's something new on Airs LA every day. I'm your host, Annette Rowe, and every Monday, I review varying events that happen during This Week in History, brought to you from A&E Networks, The History Channel, and History.com. August 28. On this date in history in the year 1869, three leave Powell's Grand Canyon expedition. Convinced they will have a better chance surviving the desert, than the raging rapids that lay ahead, three men leave John Wesley Powell's expedition through the Grand Canyon and scale the cliffs to the plateau above. Though it turned out the men had made a serious mistake, they can hardly be faulted for believing that Powell's plan to float the brutal rapids was suicidal. Powell, a one-armed Civil War veteran and self-trained naturalist, had embarked on his daring descent of the mighty Colorado River three months earlier. Accompanied by eleven men in four wooden boats, he led the expedition through the Grand Canyon and over punishing rapids that many would hesitate to run even with modern rafts. The worst was yet to come. Near the lower end of the canyon, the party heard the roar of giant rapids. Moving to shore, they explored on foot and saw, in the words of one man, the worst rapids yet. Powell agreed, writing that, The bellows are huge, and I fear our boats could not ride them. There is discontent in the camp tonight, and I fear some of the party will take to the mountains, but hope not. The next day, three of Powell's men did leave. Convinced that the rapids were impassable, they decided to take their chances crossing the harsh desert lands above the canyon rims. On this day in 1869, Seneca Howland, O.G. Howland, and William H. Dunn said goodbye to Powell and the other men and began the long climb up out of the Grand Canyon. The remaining members of the party steeled themselves, climbed into boats, and pushed off into the wild rapids. Amazingly, all of them survived and the expedition emerged from the canyon the next day. When he reached the nearest settlement, Powell learned that the three men who left had been less fortunate. They allegedly encountered a war party of Shivwit Indians and were killed. Ironically, the three murders were initially seen as more newsworthy than Powell's feat and the expedition gained valuable publicity. When Powell embarked on his second trip through the Grand Canyon in 1871, the publicity from the first trip had ensured that the second voyage was far better financed than the first. August 29 on this date in history, in the year 1876, Charles F. Kettering, inventor of the electric self-starter, is born. Charles Franklin Kettering, the American engineer and longtime director of research for General Motors Corporation, is born on this date in 1876 in Ludenville, Ohio. Of the 140 patents Kettering obtained over the course of his lifetime, perhaps the most notable was his electric self-starter for the automobile patented in 1915. Early in his career, Kettering worked at the National Cash Register Company in Dayton, Ohio, where he helped develop the first cash register to be equipped with an electric motor that opened the register drawer. 
With Edward A. Deeds, he formed Dayton Engineering Laboratories Company, Delco, a business dedicated to designing equipment for automobiles. Kettering's key-operated electric self-starting ignition system, introduced on Cadillac vehicles in 1912 and patented three years later, made automobiles far easier and safer to operate than they had previously when the ignition process had been powered by iron hand cranks. By the 1920s, electric self-starters would come standard on nearly every new automobile. United Motors Corporation, which later became General Motors, purchased Delco in 1916, installing Kettering as vice president and director of research at GM from 1920 to 1947. During his tenure at GM, Kettering was instrumental in the development of improved engines, quick-drying automobile paints and finishes, anti-knock fuels designed to reduce the damaging process of engine knocking which occurs when gasoline ignites too early in an internal combustion engine, and variable speed transmissions, among other innovations. Kettering's passion for invention spread far beyond the automobile industry. He helped develop the refrigerant Freon, used in refrigerators and air conditioners, and took an active role in the medical industry, inventing a treatment for venereal disease, an incubator for premature infants, and artificial fever therapy. Highly devoted to education, he helped found the Flint Institute of Technology in 1919 and the General Motors Institute, now Kettering University, in 1926. In 1945, he and longtime General Motors head Alfred P. Sloan established the Sloan Kettering Institute for Cancer Research in New York City. August 30. On this date in history, in the year 1980, Christopher Cross has his first of two number one hits with Sailing. Young American singer-songwriter Christopher Cross completes a meteoric rise from obscurity with his hit ballad Sailing reaches the top of the Billboard pop chart on August 30, 1980. A year later, MTV's first Minutes on Air feature, the music video for Video Killed the Radio Star by British synth-pop duo The Buggles. In the years since, many observers link these events to Cross's eventual decline. But even if MTV killed the radio star, it did so only after a run as great and unexpected as any in pop history. Released in January 1980, Cross's self-titled debut album was one of the biggest soft rock hits of all time. The first single was Ride Like the Wind, which featured a memorable backup vocal by Doobie Brothers singer Michael McDonald and rose to number two on the pop charts the following summer. Sailing was the follow-up single, and it rose even faster and higher, hitting number one on this day in 1980. It also transformed Christopher Cross from a complete unknown to the biggest name in pop almost overnight, propelling him to a still unmatched sweep at the 1981 Grammy Awards, where Sailing won Grammys for the Best Record and Best Song. Christopher Cross won for Best Album, and Cross himself won for Best New Artist. Cross would have another number one pop hit later that year with Arthur's theme, The Best That You Can Do co-written with Burt Bacharach and Carol Bayer-Saker and winner of the 1982 Oscar for Best Song. But Cross's next top 10 hit, Think of Laura in 1983, would be his last. 
some say that the extremely talented but not terribly telegenic Christopher Cross was undone by the aesthetic imperatives brought on by the dawning of the MTV era. But it was just as reasonable to suggest musical fashions were already shifting away from Cross's light adult contemporary sound without the help of MTV. In any event, Cross disappeared from the pop scene almost as quickly as he entered it. Would I have rather had a career like Peter Gabriel or Sting or somebody that grows over a long period of years and sustains like they have? Cross asked himself in an interview 20 years after his heyday. I'd prefer that as opposed to the sort of meteoric curve of my career, but I hear my music in grocery stores, and people do know who I am, and I continue to tour, so it's great. Given the options, I wouldn't change a thing. August 31. On this date in history, in the year 1955, William Cobb demonstrates a first solar-powered car. William G. Cobb of the General Motors Corporation demonstrates his 15-inch-long Sunmobile, the world's first solar-powered automobile at the General Motors Powerama Auto Show held in Chicago, Illinois. Cobb's Sunmobile introduced, however briefly, the field of protovoltaics, the process by which the sun's rays are converted into electricity when exposed to certain surfaces into the gasoline-drenched automotive industry. When sunlight hit 12 photoelectric cells made of selenium, a non-metal substance with conducting properties, built into the Sunmobile, an electric current was produced that in turn powered a tiny motor. The motor turned the vehicle's drive shaft, which was connected to its rear axle by a pulley. Visitors of the month-long $7 million Powerama marveled at some 250 free exhibits spread over 1 million square feet of space on the shores of Lake Michigan. In addition to Cobb's futuristic mini-automobile, Powerama visitors were treated to an impressive display of GM's diesel-fueled empire, from oil wells and cotton gins to submarines and other military equipment. Today, more than a half a century after Cobb debuted the Sunmobile, a mass-produced solar car has yet to hit the market anywhere in the world. Solar car competitions are held worldwide, however, in which design teams pit their sun-powered creations, also known as photovoltaic or PV cars, against each other in road races such as the 2008 North American Solar Challenge, a 2,400-mile drive from Dallas, Texas to Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Solar car competitions are held worldwide, however, in which design teams pit their sun-powered creations, also known as photovoltaic or PV cars, against each other in road races, such as the 2008 North American Solar Challenge, a 2,400-mile drive from Dallas, Texas to Calgary, Alberta, Canada. September 1. On this date in history, in the year 1985, the wreck of the Titanic is found. Seventy-three years after it sank to the North Atlantic Ocean floor, a joint U.S.-French expedition locates the wreck of the RMS Titanic. 
The sunken liner was about 400 miles east of Newfoundland in the North Atlantic, some 13,000 feet below the surface. Efforts to locate and salvage the Titanic began almost immediately after it sank, but technical limitations as well as the sheer vastness of the North Atlantic search area made it extremely difficult. American oceanographer and former Navy officer Robert D. Ballard, who was based out of the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution in Massachusetts, led his first search expedition in 1977, which was unsuccessful. In 1985, along with French oceanographer Jean-Louis Michel, Ballard again set out to locate the wreck, this time with an experimental unmanned submersible called the Argo, developed by the U.S. Navy. The Argo traveled just above the ocean floor, sending photographs up to the research vessel NOR. In the early morning of September 1, Argo was investigating debris on the ocean floor when it suddenly passed over one of Titanic's massive boilers lying at a depth of about 13,000 feet. The next day, the body of the ship was discovered nearby. It had split in two, but many of its features and interiors were remarkably well-preserved. Hundreds of thousands of bits of debris were scattered in a two-square-mile radius around the ship. The wreck was subsequently explored by manned and unmanned submersibles, which shed new light on the details of its 1912 sinking. The Titanic is now routinely explored, and several thousand artifacts have been recovered. Ballard, who was celebrated as a hero after the discovery, has led several more high-profile search expeditions, including of the RMS Lusitania and the USS Yorktown. September 2. On this date in history, in the year 2013, Diana Nyad, 64, makes a record swim from Cuba to Florida. 64-year-old Diana Nyad becomes the first person to swim from Cuba to Florida without the use of a shark cage for protection. Nyad completed the 110-mile swim from Havana to Key West through the jellyfish and shark-infested waters of the Straits of Florida in approximately 53 hours. Born on August 22, 1949 in New York City and raised in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, Nyad was a champion swimmer in high school. In 1975, two years after graduation from Lake Forest College in Illinois, she made headlines by swimming the 28 miles around the island of Manhattan in less than eight hours. In 1978, she attempted her first swim from Havana to Key West. However, dangerous swells and strong currents that pushed her off course forced her out of the water after 42 hours. The following year, she set a record for swimming the 102 miles from North Bimini, Bahamas, to Juneau Beach, Florida, a feat she accomplished in 27 and a half hours. Afterward, she retired from endurance swimming and worked as a journalist and motivational speaker. After three decades away from marathon swimming, Nyad decided to make another try at swimming from Cuba to Florida. She attempted the journey in August 2011, but had to end it after about 28 hours in the water due to an extended asthma attack. Her third attempt, the following month, had to be aborted after about 41 hours due to venomous jellyfish stings. Nyad made a fourth bid in August 2012, but once again was forced to stop before reaching Key West due to storms and jellyfish stings. Nyad began her fifth attempt at Cuba to Florida on the morning of August 31, 2013. 
keeping on course by following a line dragged in the water by a support boat. She hummed her favorite songs in her head to help concentrate. For part of the journey, she wore a bodysuit, gloves, booties, and a special mask to protect her from jellyfish. However, the mask caused her to take in a lot of salt water, which made her vomit throughout much of the swim. After nearly 53 hours in the open water, the 64-year-old successfully made it to Key West, where she staggered ashore onto Smathers Beach and was greeted by a crowd of supporters. A month after her historic achievement, Nyad completed a 48-hour swim in an outdoor pool set up in midtown Manhattan. The event was a fundraiser for victims of 2012's Hurricane Sandy. September 3. On this date in history, in the year 1783, the Treaty of Paris is signed. The American Revolution officially comes to an end when representatives of the United States, Great Britain, Spain, and France sign the Treaty of Paris on September 3, 1783. The signing signified America's status as a free nation as Britain formally recognized the independence of its 13 former American colonies and the boundaries of the new republic were agreed upon, Florida north to the Great Lakes and the Atlantic coast west to the Mississippi River. The events leading up to the treaty stretched back to April 1775 in Lexington, Massachusetts, when American colonists answered King George III's refusal to grant them political and economic reform with armed revolution. On July 4, 1776, more than a year after the first volleys of the war were fired, the Second Continental Congress officially adopted the Declaration of Independence. Five difficult years later, on October 1781, British General Charles Lord Cornwallis surrendered to America and French forces at Yorktown, Virginia, bringing to an end the last major battle of the Revolution. In September 1782, Benjamin Franklin, along with John Adams and John Jay, began official peace negotiations with the British. The Continental Congress had originally named a five-person committee, including Franklin, Adams, and Jay, along with Thomas Jefferson and Henry Lawrence, to handle the talks. However, both Jefferson and Lawrence missed the sessions. Jefferson had travel delays and Lawrence had been captured by the British and was being held in the Tower of London. The U.S. delegation, which was distrustful of the French, opted to negotiate separately with the British. During the talks, Franklin demanded that Britain hand over Canada to the United States. This did not come to pass, but America did gain enough new territory south of the Canadian border to double its size. The United States also successfully negotiated for important fishing rights in Canadian waters and agreed, among other things, not to prevent British creditors from attempting to recover debts owed to them. Two months later, the key details had been hammered out and on November 30, 1782, the United States and Britain signed the preliminary articles of the treaty. France signed its own preliminary peace agreement with Britain on January 20, 1783, and then in September of that year, the final treaty was signed by all three nations and Spain. The Treaty of Paris was ratified by the Continental Congress on January 14, 1784. And that wraps up our This Week in History podcast for August 28th through September 3rd. 
If you'd like to learn more about Airs LA, including streaming audio, podcasts, and more, we invite you to connect or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook social media platforms. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind and print-impaired audience. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Annette Rowe, and I'll return next week to bring you more events that happen during Next Week in History. Until then, thanks for listening.